Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you weren't with us a uh, few Wednesdays ago when we finished up the book of Jeremiah, we uh, did a little topical about the life of uh, King Asa. And if you weren't with us, I encourage you to go get that. A fascinating study. And one of the things that I said was, it's kind of nice when we get done with the book. It's always fun to start a new book. But it's also nice to kind of stop sometimes and go through some of these passages that we normally don't get time to go through. A lot of times, if I'm reading through devotions or if I read something neat, I'll put that at the back of my mind and say, boy, that'd be a fun message to give. But when you're going through the book of Jeremiah, that's 52 chapters long, and you're in chapter 20, you know it's going to take 10 years to get through the book. You don't get a chance to go through them. So what I've been doing here the last couple Wednesdays is getting a chance just to stop and wanted to share just some little passages. I don't really want to call it a topical because it's still a verse by verse. Like, for example, tonight we're going to do verses 1 through 15 of Ecclesiastes 3. But it's been years since we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's fun to come back in and look at this type of stuff. Now, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I love the book of Ecclesiastes because the book of Ecclesiastes is so completely honest. Now, we are not honest like the book of Ecclesiastes is. The book of Ecclesiastes was probably written by Solomon. And you have to read the book of Ecclesiastes with this perspective in mind. It's written by a man who has a relationship with the Lord, but does not have a strong relationship with the Lord. If you want to look at him being backslidden, that's fine. If you want to look at him going backwards instead of forwards, that's fine. He's writing this in a deep, dark time of his life. So when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, there's some verses that pop out at you, and you say, that just doesn't line up with the rest of the Bible. And you know what? It doesn't. If you look at some of the false cults out there, they quote a lot of verses from Ecclesiastes. Because why? Some of these verses are strange. And you may say, well, why are they put in there? Because this book is written from the honest perspective of a man and a dark spiritual time in his life who's not right with the Lord. Think about this. Take the deepest, darkest spiritual time you were ever at. Maybe you were depressed. Maybe you were discouraged. Maybe you were ready to give up on God in life. And imagine all those thoughts you had now written down for everybody to read. You'd be embarrassed by them. You wish you wouldn't have thought them. We may not admit it publicly, but we've all had thoughts at least once in our walk with the Lord of saying, why pray? It doesn't do any good. Boy, God doesn't care. If he cared, he wouldn't allow this to happen. Now, we usually catch ourselves right away. Sometimes those thoughts linger. Sometimes we stay in that depression and that discouragement for a while. You know, there's a Christian friend out here, and she always refers to an Ecclesiastes moment in life. And sometimes if I talk to her and she's having a bad day, she'd be like, it's just an Ecclesiastes moment. And I've caught that. I like that verbiage. Because sometimes when I'm talking to people, they're down, they're depressed, they're discouraged. They don't care anymore. They're just going to give up. I know their heart. They're not going to give up. They love the Lord. They're having an Ecclesiastes moment. It's depressing. It's dark. It's discouraging. So as you read through Ecclesiastes, keep that in the back of your mind. Written from the perspective of a man who knows the Lord, but is in a deep, dark place in his life. And he's probably going to regret some of these things, but the Lord allowed it to be written down through the Spirit so that way we can look back and say, I've been there, I understand that, because I've been in those dark, deep times too. Love the book of Ecclesiastes. Even though it's a very downer of a book, you actually feel encouraged as you read it, because sometimes you'll read some of these verses and it's like, I'm glad someone finally verbalized what I've thought. That's what Ecclesiastes is. Now, with that being said, the most famous passage... In the book of Ecclesiastes is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, it's very difficult to not read this chapter, not think about the song that goes along with it. 
And I don't consider myself that old by any means whatsoever, but I was doing a, a devotional one time with a group of guys. And there was three guys there, and they were all in their late teens, and we were doing like this little discipleship class. And we went to Ecclesiastes, and I made a reference to that song, and they had no idea what I was talking about. I don't feel old, but at that moment I thought, my goodness. So, as you read this, these are the lyrics here. So as you go through this, let's do this. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now, this is why we're going through this. I read this for devotions while Dawn and I were gone for a few days last week and it kind of hit me. You know, we took off for a few days to do some family stuff. And before we left, we made sure everything was in order. I made sure I had the yard mowed. So that way I wouldn't have to mow while we were doing some family stuff. Made sure the yard was weed waxed. I wouldn't have to worry about it. Dawn, before we left to go camping for a little bit, she made sure all the laundry was done, all the dishes was done. Everything was looking good. Everything was done. So near the end of the family time away, I look out at the yard and I thought, i got to mow again. Dawn, when we got back... She did a lot of laundry, a lot of dishes. There's a lot of stuff to do. And there's this constant cycle of life. I'm going to mow the yard. I'm probably going to mow the yard either tomorrow or Friday, probably. And guess what? In about seven, eight days again, I'm going to be mowing the yard again. We're going to do laundry at our house. We're going to do dishes. And guess what? The next day, we're going to do more laundry and there's going to be more dishes. There are seasons and purposes in life. And this is something that God is trying to remind us of. Your yard will get cut and then it will grow again. Now, that's a really simple example. Let's go a little deeper. I live, and this is one of my fears I have, and I have memorized Psalm 91 where it says, I will not fear the pestilence that creeps at night. I have a fear of sickness. I'm not afraid so much of me getting sick. There's seven of us in our family. So therefore, when one of us gets sick, it is inevitable for the next two weeks we are going to pass that thing around to every single person. So as soon as one kid says, I don't feel good, I know for the next two weeks there's going to be somebody in that house that does not feel good. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And so right now we are at a moment of health in the Irvin house. I wish I could walk in that joy of being in health. But you know what's going to happen? This year, someone's going to get sick. And they're going to pass it along to everybody else. There's a time and season to every purpose. Right now, there was, I don't think we had any blood at the Irvin house today. There was nobody that got hurt. But you know what's going to probably happen tomorrow? There'll probably be a bloody nose. Actually, the last person, how's this for an example? The last person to bleed at the Irvin house was Dawn because she got hit in the face with the baby's water bottle. Ask her about it. She was so ticked. And I'm telling you right now, I don't care if this is recorded or not. She was so mad. She went to bed angry. She got up the next day and she was still angry. Ask her about it. It would be funny. Um, she got a bloody nose. The baby hit her so hard with the water bottle. Don't ask her about it. Actually, don't. Um, it's going to happen. Right now, you, you may have come tonight and you feel good. You're, you're going to get sick. You may come tonight and you may be sick. Well, you're going to feel better eventually. You may have had a good day at work today. Well, you know what? Tomorrow may be a bad day at work. Right now, you and your spouse are getting along. Well, you guys are going to have a fight. 
This is this life and world that we live in. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes gets in the middle of this, and guess what happens? He gets depressed. He says, this is stupid. He says, so this day is good. Fine, tomorrow's going to be bad. Hey, this day is bad. Well, tomorrow's going to be good. But you know what? I can't enjoy tomorrow being good because I know that the next day could possibly be bad. And then he goes on and on for chapters saying, I work my life so hard just to die, to leave everything I worked for to somebody else. And this is why the writer of Ecclesiastes gets depressed and gets discouraged. Same thing happens spiritually. Look at the first verse there, verse 2, I should say, a time to be born and a time to die. I know for me as a pastor, I experience this all the time. I can get a phone call saying, congratulations, we're pregnant. Congratulations, we just had our baby. And the next phone call could be, my grandmother just died. That's the world we live in. People are being born and people are dying all the time. Verse 3, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. I can see right now as a church, I see people building up in the Lord. And I would just share this. Recently, I had two phone calls back to back. The first phone call was somebody who was very angry at me about something and very loud about it. That was a time to break down. Minutes later, I get a phone call, and there's a wonderful spiritual breakthrough that we had been praying for for months. A time to build up. That's life. That is life. Verse 4, you're going to weep, you're going to laugh, you're going to mourn, you're going to dance. That, that is just how it happens. One pastor said about this, he goes, you will go to the funeral one day and weep, but then your friend gets married the next day and you go to the reception and you dance. That's the world we live in. And it is difficult sometimes for us as Christians to find this balance because it can get depressing. It can get discouraging. So why in the world does the Lord have us go through these gambit of emotions? The answer is found in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. God puts in your heart this longing that you will never be completely satisfied on this earth. Because if you were completely satisfied on this earth, what is the purpose of heaven? There's always going to be something in you that says, yeah, this is good, but... I read a devotional this week where the guy talked about what's heaven like. That's a big question I'd always ask. What's heaven like? And we've said out here before that God really does not do a good job describing heaven. Part of the reason God doesn't do a good job describing heaven is because heaven is indescribable, according to what Paul said. But you've got to remember, everything that God created on this earth, the Bible says, is a shadow of things to come. So, this, the writer of this devotional said, when you look at or think about the idea of heaven, it's really a shadow of what goes on here on earth. Now, that helps me understand heaven a little bit better. That what God's perfect creation, the Garden of Eden, is a picture of what heaven is supposed to be looking like. This idea of being free from disease and sickness and pain and worry, etc. That that's a longing that we have built into us. Verse 11, he's put eternity into your heart. If you could imagine that this world was completely and utterly fulfilling, well then why in the world were you striving for something bigger down the road? This world is depressing. This world is discouraging. This world creates a longing for a heavenly home that is free of pain and worry and all those things. There is a longing for that. Look at what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in verse 9. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? Ask yourself that. For some of you that have been working 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what do you have to show for it? Okay, yeah, your house may be paid off. 
Yeah, you got this, you got that. That's great. What do you have that's this eternal lasting? Nothing. That's what Solomon is saying. I work hard. 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you're saying. To do what? To die. To leave it to someone else. Verse 10. I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Part of the curse is work. I mean, if you go back to Genesis, that's part of the curses that we have to work, which makes us, once again, create a longing for heaven. Hence, verse 11, he's put eternity in our hearts. So, when you look at Ecclesiastes 3, verses 2 through 8, if you could just pick the good ones, a time to be born, a time to heal, a time to build up, a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to embrace, a time to gain, a time to keep, well, that'd be great. But the purpose of Ecclesiastes is saying, yes, you're born, but then you also die. There is also death and there's also healing. There's breaking down and building up. And I don't know what season of life you're in, but that season of life you're in is not your eternal state. And aren't you thankful for that? Because even if you're in a good season in life, everybody's healthy, everything is good, everything is clicking, aren't you glad that this is not the top? That there's a whole other eternal level in heaven that we get to enjoy. And maybe you're on the flip side. You're on the downside right now. Your world is completely, utterly falling apart. Your verse 3, a time to break down. Your verse 4, this is your time of weeping, your time of mourning. Verse 8, you're in a time of hate. You're in a time of war. Aren't you thankful that that doesn't live on forever? Ecclesiastes 3 gives us this balance of both sides. And it's important for us as a Christian to understand the world we live in. We will have days of health followed by days of sickness. We will have good days at work followed by bad days at work. The yard will get mowed and then we'll have to get mowed again. You will have a strong relationship with your spouse followed by moments of difficulty. You have a strong relationship with your kids followed by moments of difficulty. It doesn't mean that it's going to continue on forever because it's a season that we're in. And God says, I will get you through that season. I mean, I'm not trying to be depressing and discouraging here. We're ending July. One of my least favorite months is August. I don't know. I've never liked August. I'm not a fan of the fair. School gets ready to start. August is usually just sticky and hot. I don't like August. You know what falls August? September. September is not bad. No, falls September, October. I hate October. See, I'm, I'm moody, okay? I like November. I like December. I hate January. I hate February. See, this is human nature. This is the nature that we live in. See, it's kind of funny because we we all have these different ideas of what we like and dislike. And God says, the focus is not you. The focus is, verse 11, he has put eternity in your heart. The focus is looking past this world to the eternal. The eternal, that's what matters. Now, we'll stop here for a second because we're going to come back and break this down a little bit more. Anybody have any quick questions, comments on anything that we've covered thus far before we go to break this down? Rose. I did get married in August. I did. I got, you know what here? Okay, actually, Dawn and I got married August 3rd, so that's coming up in, well, in three days. And so we'll be married 17 years, August 3rd. And I remember it was hot, and there was no air conditioning. And I remember I had to talk to a lot of people I didn't know. That's what I remember about my wedding. I can actually remember Dawn and I splitting up the thank yous at the end of our wedding, and we had a pile of people that we couldn't claim. She says, they're not mine. And I said, well, they're not mine either. And I remember going to my mom saying, is this mine? I need to write this. That's what I remember about my wedding. I think Dawn was there, too, at the wedding. Um, so August is not so bad. No. August is bad. 
first three days weren't bad. You get past August 4th, it's not good. I'm telling you that right now. Uh, anybody else have anything here? I think David, you had your hand up. What's that? Is this continued from Proverbs? Well, it's a very similar writing style because most people believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. So when you read through Ecclesiastes and you read through Proverbs, there is a lot of similarities there in what they're kind of how they're presenting things. But I don't believe in Proverbs there is a passage that's so eloquent as this right here. But Ecclesiastes and Proverbs do sound similar sometimes as they read through it. It's probably the same author. Anybody else have anything before we move on? Okay, so we've established this. Now that we've established that the world is good and depressing at the same time, what do we do with this? There has to be something here that spurs us on. Verse 2, I'm going to be born, and every day is one day closer to me dying. Now that either depresses me, or I stop and I say, what am I going to do with this? That's what we have to decide on. So I can't decide how you're going to handle that. Because if you're having a bad day, fine. Allow the bad day overtake you, and the world is awful, God is awful, and everything is awful. If that's the Ecclesiastes moment you want to live in, I can't get you out of that. But Ecclesiastes is also trying to teach you, yes, it's awful now, but it's not going to stay awful forever. Generally at that time, there's someone who says, oh yeah, what mine is. I can't do anything about that. Because Ecclesiastes 3, verses 2 through 8, makes it abundantly clear. There's two sides to every coin. Now, let's build on this. Can you go real quick? Just two verses here in the New Testament. I'm going to have you flip a little bit. Hebrews 9, please. We have to establish two points. Now that we understand this frailty of life and the good, the bad, and the ugly, let's build on this. First one is Hebrews 9. And as you're going to Hebrews 9, please also go to Colossians 4. Hebrews 9, Colossians 4. Hebrews 9, Colossians 4. Now, usually I don't make you go to just one verse because I usually just read it and tell you about it. I want you to see these verses and understand these verses. Hebrews 9. Now, Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 set up this very eloquent argument for Jesus and his death on the cross. And his death on the cross took away our sins. Now, that's usually what we focus on. But we also have to focus on this idea that we are going to die. Hebrews 9, verse 26. He, meaning Jesus would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus took care of sin. Amen. Verse 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now, that's a very important verse. Because you're going to die. You are. And after you die, you're going to face the judgment. Now, there's two different judgments here that we're basically talking about, and I'm oversimplifying in times here. There's the great white throne judgment where all non-believers stand before God, and since they've rejected Christ, they're sentenced to hell. But there's also something we as believers go through called the judgment seat of Christ, where I still stand before God. And this is not a judgment of do I go to heaven or hell. It's already been decided I go to heaven. But this is a judgment of how did I live my life on this earth, not in the sense of was I a good boy or bad boy, but did I live a life... That was an example of Christ, and I am then a witness for Him. So, remember that. You're going to die. And I know that people don't like to talk about that, but we got to say it. They're going to die. Now go to Colossians 4. Since you know you're going to die, and you know you're going to stand before the Lord, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 
Colossians 4, verse 17. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, how simple is this? Follow me. Ecclesiastes 3 tells me this. There's two sides to every coin. I'm not sick today. I may be sick tomorrow. I'm not dying today, but I may die tomorrow. My world is not falling apart today, but my world may fall apart tomorrow. Or, flip it around, my world is falling apart today, but it may be fixed tomorrow. That's life. So with that mindset, I either can walk in depression and discouragement and defeat, or I can realize God allows these two sides of the coin to happen to remind me that this is not my home. I should not be satisfied on this earth. I have eternity in my heart. With that mindset, I realize I will die. I will stand before the Lord. So since I know this is coming, Colossians 4.17, I take heed to the ministry that God has given me and I fulfill it. So my life, make this clear, my life is not my job. My life is not my house. My life is fulfilling the ministry that God gave me. For me, my ministry is taking care of my wife as Christ loved the church, raising five boys to hopefully grow up and accept Christ at an early age, and then taking care of Harvest Fellowship. That's my ministry. And I understand that's what God has given me to do. When I understand that, everything I do flows through those three channels. And I encourage you to stop and say, Lord, what is the ministry that God has given me? Because you will die. You will stand before the Lord. And He's going to say, did you fulfill the ministry I gave you? And I'm telling you right now, you don't want to stand before the Lord and say, you know, God, I never figured out what that ministry thing was. No. If you don't know, and this is not an attacking, make you feel bad statement, don't take it that way. If you don't know the ministry that God has given you, I encourage you to spend time in the Word and prayer and fasting and say, Lord, reveal to me the ministry that you've given me. Because when you figure out the reason you're here, now you have a fulfillment. Now you have a purpose. And I tell you this. Figuring out the ministry is not as difficult as it sounds. If you're married, be the best spouse you can be. If you have kids that you still have spiritual influence over, raise them in Christ. Maybe you have grandkids that you have spiritual influence over. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you just have a sphere of influence at work, at home with friends. Then you'd be a light and a witness for the Lord. Find a place to serve at church. Serve in that capacity. That's ministry. There's this one guy I know, and God love him. Love him. He had a wonderful heart for service and ministry. The problem was he would never go out and do anything. He spent all his time praying about what he was supposed to do. And I appreciate that. And I tell you, to this day, he's moved away. But to this day, and I still keep in touch with him, I don't think he's doing anything. I think he's still praying about what to do. And I'm not making a joke. He went so bad to do what God has called him in his life to do that he's not doing anything. Sometimes I think we make ministry too difficult. Do you have non-believers that you work with? Be a light and a witness to them. Do you have kids? Be a spiritual influence to them. Let's not complicate ministry. Lord, I want to influence people for Christ. That's really what it comes down to. That's my life goal. Now, jump back, if you will, real quick to Ecclesiastes 3. This sounds fine. This sounds dandy. This sounds great. But the problem is, for me to fulfill my ministry, guess what the problem is? I have to work with you guys. That's the problem. I have to work with humans. It'd be so easy to fulfill my ministry if I didn't have to work with other people. Same thing. 
It'd be easy for people to fill their ministry if they probably didn't have to work with me. Look how difficult these relationships can be. Verse 3, a time to kill, a time to heal. There's probably people you want to see healed and there's probably people you want to see killed. There's tough relationships. Verse 3, a time to break down, a time to build up. You probably have relationships right now that God is building up and you're rejoicing in that. There's probably relationships right now that are falling apart in front of you and your heart breaks. People are difficult to work with. Verse 4, there's seasons of life. Some of you came in tonight weeping. Some of you came in tonight laughing. Some of you came in tonight mourning. Some of you came in tonight dancing. You're in a different season of life. And that's what makes all these relationships and things difficult. A verse that I completely, utterly cling to is out of Romans where it says, Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So when I run into someone weeping, I want to go down to their level and say, I weep with you and let me encourage you in Christ. If I see someone rejoicing, I want to go down to their level and say, I rejoice with you. Because I want us to be on the same season. It is tough. Verse 7. A time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, a time to speak. A time to tear refers to mourning. That you rip your clothes. Your life is so completely, utterly overwhelming. You rip your clothes because you're in such mourning. But it's time to sow. Hey, that horrible situation that I thought would never end and it was complete, utter darkness has ended. Let's sew the clothes back up. Because God is good. A time to keep silent, a time to speak. That's something we really need to focus on. And I tell you, we could do a whole lesson on keeping silent and when to speak. I sum it up like this. Wisdom is knowing what to say, when to say it, and even if to say it at all. Sometimes the best wisdom you can do is to say nothing. My boys have gotten excited very lately here. We've gotten to the point where we started playing baseball. And so the older four can go out. So we can have five people out there actually playing baseball. And I remember my dad making it very clear to me when I was playing baseball growing up as a kid, one of the things that he always ingrained into me, sometimes the best play is no play at all. So you catch that grounder, and you think you can make that throw to first, but you know what? It's so close, sometimes it's best to not make the throw and just let it go. My boys, when they're playing, here's little Layden, who's three. He hits the ball, and we use a real baseball. He hits the ball. Elias dives for it. He picks it up. He's playing shortstop. Judah's playing first. Judah can't catch a ball to save his life, but he's playing first. Elias can't throw to save his life. Elias picks up that ball, and he's going to throw it as hard as he can. The only thing I see is Judah and Layden getting hit with the ball and everybody just getting teeth knocked out left and right. So sometimes when Elias picks that ball up, and Layden's already on first, he's safe. Elias is still going to throw that ball as hard as he can for no reason. Trying to ingrain into him. Sometimes the best play is no play. Elias, don't throw. Just let it go. Sometimes I want to go up to you and to me, and I see your mouth opening. And I love you. I want to stick my hand in your mouth so bad, saying, just don't say anything. Don't say anything. It's not worth it at this time. Oh, somebody's got to say something. Let the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm not going to let them get away with it. They're not getting away with anything. Verse 7. There's a time to keep silent. Don't say anything. And there's also time to speak. Let the Lord know. Let the Lord lead you and tell you the difference. I used to have people come up to me. Do you think I should say something? And I used to try to give them these long answers. And now I say, what's the Lord say? the Lord tells you to speak, speak. If the Lord tells you to be quiet, be quiet. What I want to finish with is this, verse 8. Time to love, a time to hate. Time of war and a time of peace. Now, I looked up that word hate, and I really tried to water down that word hate, and I can't water down that word hate. That word hate means hate. 
Now, you have to remember, back to our original point, Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of a man who knows God, but he is not right with the Lord. So therefore, when he says there's a time to hate, this is not giving you a green light to say, well, the Bible says I'm allowed to hate. Now, we've made this point out here many times. You can have righteous anger. Do not allow your righteous anger to become sinful anger. You can be angry, and you can have a reason to be angry. You can be hurt, you can be wrong, you can be whatever. So you have a righteous anger that's not unbiblical. But the problem is, your righteous anger is now festered and become bitterness, and now you're sinfully angry. There's never a reason to hate. If you hate your enemy, the Bible makes it clear. You love them and you pray for them. What about this peace thing? This is why I want to close with. Two verses on peace. Romans 12 and Hebrews 12, please. We'll close with this. Romans 12 and Hebrews 12. If you would turn there with me, please. We'll go to the Romans 1 first. Romans 12. I think all of us here want more peace in our life. I can remember when I was a new believer, Pastor Rich always used to say that sometimes the way God blesses you is just peace in the home. And I tell you now, that's with kids and marriage... That's one of the greatest blessings you can have, is peace in the home. I was just reading Proverbs the other day to the boys, and I, and I can't quote it exactly, but basically it was better a dry morsel with no food but to have quietness in the house. Basically, it's good to have quietness in the house even if you're starving because peace in the home is so vital. So, how do we get peace? Romans 12, verse 18. Actually... If you want peace, you've got to go back to verse 17, I guess. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You have a biblical responsibility to do absolutely everything you can to build bridges and have peace with people. Now, you can do everything right, and they still don't want peace. There's nothing you can do about that. But you have a biblical responsibility to say, Have I done everything I can to build a bridge of peace? Well, what happens... If you don't want peace, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't allow your righteous anger to become sinful anger. Verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That verse is very straightforward. Love your enemies. Now, all of us at one time or another, we hear that and we say, Yeah, but you don't know what this person did. There is not an escape clause in those passages. You may have been so hurt, so wronged by somebody, it still does not give us the green light to harbor anger and hate. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I have seen people be overcome with evil. Why? Because they have allowed their righteous anger to become sinful anger. One last verse on peace and we're done. Hebrews 12, please. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people. Now, I can pursue peace with some people. That's really easy. But when it tells me to pursue peace with all people, that's difficult to do. Do you realize how difficult certain people are? To pursue peace with them? That's tough. Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Now, why'd they have to throw in holiness? See, because I can fake peace. 
I can go up to someone I can't stand. I can look them in the eye and say, nice to see you today. I can shake their hand. I can make chit-chat for a little bit while still seething in my heart anger, frustration, and bitterness. So by God adding that horrible word of holiness in there, he's saying, I just don't want outside peace. He goes, I want inward peace as well. Without which no one will see the Lord. Look at verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. That root of bitterness is dangerous. When we allow that root of bitterness to plant ourselves in it, it destroys us. It destroys our relationships with others. The relationships that were good become defiled because that bitterness overtakes us. We no longer walk in peace and joy and love. We walk in anger and frustration and bitterness and discouragement. Why? Because instead of seeking peace, we're angry. See, Ecclesiastes tells us, and I think it's important, Ecclesiastes ends... Of all the things it could have ended with, it ends with a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. You know, we can, it's difficult. We can work through life and death. We understand the cycle of life and death. We can work through weeping, mourning, laughing, dancing. Love, hate, war, and peace, those are tough. God help us to realize the seasons of life and to not allow any season to overtake us, but he has put eternity in our hearts to remind us that there is an eternal good in what we're doing. This is not the end, and I want to fulfill the ministry God gave me. I'm going to stand before the Lord, and Lord, I want to have that eternal perspective in all that I do and all that I say. Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book, and I think it's good to get in there to remind us sometimes of what life is. Life is tough. But yet Ecclesiastes also reminds us the flip side of that, that God gets us through those difficult times. So it's a little after 8 here. Kept you a little bit while longer. Does anybody have any uh, final questions, comments here before we go ahead and close up? Ronnie, glad you could make it out. I hope you're blessed by that. I encourage you, if you want something fun to read, go read Ecclesiastes. It's not a long book. It's only 12 chapters. It's a fascinating look into the life of a man who knows God. But it's not where he's at. It's supposed to be spiritually. I guarantee as you read through some of those verses, you'll say, I've been there with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, I pray for just all of us here. If there's someone here tonight in an Ecclesiastes moments, that time of depression, discouragement, defeat, uplift them, encourage them. Lord, if we're in a time of victory right now, we just praise you for that. And when those times of difficultness come, help us to remember it's a season, Lord. Lord, help us to fulfill the ministry you've given us. And Lord, we look forward to your return, and we love you and we praise you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.